Oh well, audience, whip yourselves. <laughs> That went down quite well, actually. The people yeah, in the back row, in particular, quite enjoyed that. I mean, I meant whip yourselves into a frenzy, of course. But uh, you, you do what you like, of course. You're very welcome. It's good to see you all again. Thank you for coming. Um, especially um, good to see people that were here last time. But a special welcome to anyone that's here for the first time too. We've had lots of really kind words, actually, um, uh, for our first podcast with Matt. Uh, we've had a few unkind words as well, but um, all feedback is welcome. So it, it's really good to have all of that. So joining me around the table this evening, of course, is my good friend Michelle D. Voice good of Culture. Good Hello, evening. Michelle. Art blogger and developing theatre critic. Is that right? A developing theatre critic. A developing yes. theatre critic. And spoken word costume performer. You've had a busy week, haven't you, this week? I have, so, what have yeah. you been up to? Um, so, on Tuesday, it was dance class. That was, that was our last one for a bit because we need to find a new dance studio. Wednesday was National Writing Day, and I hosted two events one at the BBC, one at Cardoma, with the wonderful Kate Fox and uh, with uh, Dave Windass, who's in the audience. There he is, look, look at From little, First Story. Little Dave. <laughs> <laughs> We had a. Why is it little? You're you're so much smaller than you used to be, aren't you? Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, so that was that was really good. And then on Wednesday, theatre uncut in the evening, uh, and I uh, debuted a a Me Too poem hashtag Me Too alongside a series of three plays called Power Plays um, at Middle Child, and that was really good. That was very. Very uh, emotional, and hard-hitting. A lot of people have been saying there's not much culture in the city this first six months of 2018, but I think you're proving it wrong. I think you just have to look for it. It's not the glossy all-singing. Well, it is all-singing and dancing, but it's not the glossy kind of culture. It's just a little bit uh, hidden away. You just have to search for it. So you get it's more rewarding that way, I think. Yeah, yeah, you've got to search for it. Hunters and gatherers of Hunters culture. Hunters and gatherers, yeah. Quite yeah. right, yeah. Anyway, enough of you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Our guest for this podcast is the author of Scream If You Want to Go Faster, Swear Down and Kingdom. He's also written for TV, film, radio and the stage. In 2016, along with the internationally renowned producer and musician Steve Cobby, this fella also released the spoken word electronic album My People Come From The Sea. Might be asking you a little bit about that later. Uh, the album Boothbury followed in 2017. He joins us this evening for pre-drinks and to chat about his latest book, published by Obliterati Press, a collection of short stories entitled We Know What We Are. Very confident statement, that. Um, everyone, give Russ Litton a good welcome. So, uh, Russ, they say you should never judge a book by its cover. But I'm a pictures man, I'm a photographer, so I'm allowed to ask this question. Um, I particularly like the cover of this particular book. Mm. Um, it's a really striking image. Um, so how did that image come about, and who is it on the front cover of your book? That's my son. That's your son. Uh, Sonny. Uh, and I borrowed that address off uh, Cosmic Carol. And I had to um, blank the badge out of the old city top in case the sewers. <laughs> <laughs> um, and 
you can't see it, but actually on his arm, it was a real lot daylight today when we shot this. We shot it down the R Street in this sort of like office that we'd recently moved out of, and it was bad, it was boiling, and they didn't want to do it. And on his arm there, it says, Frank Ocean is God, <laughs> in Sharpie pen, but we had to cover it over with the A in case Frank Ocean suits. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been taking part in this um, online poll this week? that my youngest son's been telling me about, what about where they're, they're changing the, the logo, they're changing the badge, uh, potentially, for Hull City. And I've, I've, I've got no interest of... in Hull City until them two charlatans walk away in handcuffs from the ground. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this image on the front of your book, a really striking image of your young son wearing a big Indian headdress there. Yeah. Um, so when you were a kid playing in the Tenfoots of Hull, were you more naturally a cowboy or an Indian? What was well, more fun? I was an Indian. You're an Indian. I've got an Indian tattooed on, on my arm. I've been obsessed with um, Native Americans, First Nation, Native Hollensians since I was about uh, six or seven. I used to borrow my mum's makeup and put Indian war paint on myself. And um, I used to get battered for it. Do you know what I mean? I used, to put, I used to put the full lot on. Like, oh, like yeah, you know. Bravest brave. Yeah, I was, I've always been obsessed with um, Red Indians. Uh, yeah, so I was in Hiawatha. I think every kid was in Hiawatha. Um, so, yeah, I would have been uh, Indian. You would have been Well, Indian. I think, you know, you talk about my people coming from the sea. I, I realised later after we'd done it that it refers to that land, my people are stoic like Iroquois. That's what it, that's what it was referring to, I think. And I, want, and I remember asking him to look a certain way, like, you know, look down... Look, look like that with a certain amount of attitude. And he's not an attitude kid, you know what I mean? So I had to sort of like, I feel a bit bad really, you know, <laughs> harass him. <laughs> suppose, you know what I mean? You forced but, him to have a Yeah, yeah, but I did, I did envisage this cover, you know, and um, I, I really loved the cover. I really do. I'm glad you, you, you've, you've brought it up, to be honest. Okay, uh, we, we were going to ask you to read a little bit from your book, something that you think might perhaps be... You know, key identity of the whole collection of short well, stories. What now? Yeah, yeah go on. Now. Let's have a flick through it. Um, I'll read you Bohemia. That first appeared in a in a zine, didn't it? It did in a university zine. Here we go, Bohemia. This is the nearest I've got to a love story. This um, we were talking about students earlier. Now I don't know if there's any students among you, but um, do you seem to have? Ch- are you a student? Mm-hmm. You see, well, you've you've seemed to have changed in the times when I was a student. You know, um, I'm not on the I'm not on the boat. You know. You're probably the. I mean, they seem a lot less politically involved. You know what I mean? When, when I was sort of like, I went to universal university when I was 26, like late. Do you know what I mean? I, purely because I wanted to avoid work for another three years. I, all through my 20s and late teens, my entire th- opus, you know, my, what, you know it, but my entire reason for living was to avoid work. I hated work. So going to university was just a way of keeping doll off me back. Anyway, this is called Bohemia. They'd met at the welly. She was wearing dungarees and had been dancing hard to drum and bass. Her pale blue hair was tied back from her face and slicked with sweat. Mermaid hair. Years later, he would describe seeing her that night as some kind of vision as if she just walked out of the sea. She caught him smiling at the bar, this towny looking lad he went into her beneath the noise and asked her if she'd been out grafting I'm sorry she said I beg your pardon he pointed at her dungarees they're shoplifting pants them he said and Lauren had laughed and he wouldn't normally have said anything like that especially not to someone like her 
Nathan was usually nervous around girls, especially attractive emo-looking students from down south with well-rounded vowels and mermaid hair that smelt of apples. But on that particular night, he had taken a pellet of mescaline and it lent him a calm, detached confidence, a faint bemusement almost. His manner intrigued her. She was used to lads being leery in bars, especially lads from all in polo shirts who clutched bottles of lager and slid their eyes up and down there. But this didn't feel like that. She liked this lad's eyes. They joined in when he smiled. She could see there was a softness there. They got to talking. They forgot about the friends who'd come with and retreated to a low table in the dark corner away from the pounding and the babble of the bar. She was in the last year of uni, a chemistry degree. She said she liked her, liked the fact it was cheap and friendly and near the sea, liked the accent, the air nerf, half to nine, all that. She didn't know very many locals, though. She usually came to the Welly on a Friday, but spent most of her time on campus. She said the workload got totally brutal in the last year. She asked him what he did, and he told her he was a penguin trainer at the deep. And she said, what, really? And he said, no, not really, I work at a call centre. <laughs> he told her about some of the other jobs he'd had, Now he was supposed to have Charles from City when he was 14, but got glandular fever and was laid up for weeks. He asked her what she wanted to do when she got a degree, and she said she wasn't sure, maybe something to do with textiles. She liked to make her own clothes. Yes, she had made the dungarees. No, she didn't go shoplifting. <laughs> they talked about their favourite films. Music, books, Naomi Klein, footballers' biographies, what it was like in their hometown of Gloucester, boring, full of sheep. Then they talked about the countryside, cities of culture, and spaceships and deserts and Disneyland and a thousand other things. And then, for some reason, in the middle of it all, Nathan just got up and said, OK, cheers, nice to meet you. Look after yourself, Lauren, and he left. It was nerves he'd say later. He didn't think he had an open hell of actually going home with her. But really, it was because of the mescaline. He couldn't stop looking at her hair, the way it shone blue-green under the spotlights, and he'd become suddenly parried that he was staring at her, that he was making her feel uncomfortable. So he got up and walked out the club and wandered around down by the pier in the marina for a bit, watched the boats bobbing in the darkness and thought about the sea and mermaids before heading home to listen to music and chain smoke until dawn. On the back of the book, Adele Stripe, uh, she, she says that uh, the stories reveal the underbelly of Hull. And I felt very much that you were giving voice to those people, but not just giving voice to those people, but also giving air to the whole voice, the words that we use, the way we talk. Yeah, I mean, it's in a way, this is the story, the book I wanted to write from the beginning. My first book was meant to be a book of short stories, but it got sort of compromised by the devil whispering to me. And it wasn't the book I wanted it to be, really. So this, I thought, would be that revisited, but better, hopefully, because it's like 10 years on and, you know. I felt that um, the stories kind of, they felt fully formed. Was there a lot of editing? Was were you kind of yeah, tons. Of, I mean, like, them, yeah, or? the oldest the oldest story in in that book was ten years old. It was an excerpt from "Scream If You Want It to Go Faster," the one about trying to sell the t potatoes round all, but that had all fair in it, and that was meant to be in that, but it, it wasn't in it because I couldn't quite make it work, even though it really made me laugh. And then it was like you know, like a comic piece in the, in the book that could do with some fucking laughs. To be honest, <laughs> I was desperately trying to proud, get it in, but I couldn't make it work. So I thought, right, yeah, so it's the it's the longest thing in the book. Um, so, yeah, that, so, uh, but then there was other stories that had been written 
sort of like the week before they went out. That Christmas is magic. I only finished writing that about a month before it went to press. So that's what kept the sort of the, the book, you know, the writing of it alive for me. It was um, it was a, sort of a real hodgepodge of stuff. And I went back. Some of them stories I've, I've sort of changed about 35, 40 times. Another time really? it's like uh, about three or four. That's interesting because they they read so very easily. It's it's very easy to read. You pick it up and and you find yourself really engrossed. Well, that's useful in these time strapped time, you know times. Mm, yeah. mm, definitely, no one's got any time to read, have they? Unless it's hundred and forty eight characters, whatever. <laughs> it's interesting. We were talking just now. I I felt that uh, it might be because it was a literati press, and they're known for kind of quite macho, violent. Um, yeah, uh, kind of stories and books. Uh, I felt that this might be that, but I was very surprised with the very first story. It's from the point of view of a homeless girl. Yeah. So, you, yeah, you kind of uh, sucker punched me. I, I wasn't expecting that. I didn't see that coming at all. Was it a pleasant sucker punch? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, you know, that's good, isn't it? Ple- pleasant sucker punch. Yeah, I'm glad. No, I'm glad it confounded. You expect it. I don't want to write about men. You know, I, I don't want to write about that. I'm, do you know what? I got really sick of them type of books about five or six years ago when this book come out. And it was a real successful book. And it was about, and I, and I read it. And it was like, it does, you know, he does this, he does that, and blah, blah, blah. Because you know, at the end, he's going to have some sort of breakdown, bed forgiveness, and everything's going to be all right again. Mm. It's like, do you know what? Fuck off. Sit to fucking death of it. That's, you know, it's like Donald Trump's autobiography. <laughs> Anyway, you know, I just like fuck. I don't want to write stuff like that. So I really made an effort to write from a a lot, you know, a female perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember, you know, reading Carver a lot of his uh, short stories are narrated by women. And he, you know, I read this interview and he says, "How do you go about writing?" You know, assuming the woman's voice. He says, "You just forget the fact that it's a woman. Just write the story. It just happens to be a woman. So you know, it's not trying to make some sort of statement." in any way really it's just sort of always reflecting the stories it like i say it felt very easy there was no sort of mismatch between knowing i'm, it glad, was you I'm glad i'm glad you you obviously you're surrounded by uh, what some people would call low life you work in prison <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean you've been to our house have you well you live <laughs> You live on the avenues as well yeah so there you go yeah, yeah. You know i mean yeah, old but... child with the same brush <laughs> hey your characters, you can almost sort of smell their armpits. You can smell their last meal yet. So, um, so how? What's this balance really between? Well, this is the thing about me- what memoir into fiction, which is basically what I do, isn't it? You know what I mean? Right, Real life okay. and making it up. Yeah. I mean, that book I'd say about seventy-five percent of it is true. It all actually happens, it is, right. and the, t- the other twenty-five percent is legalese, of, you know, like protecting myself against legal <laughs> action. <laughs> Um, libel, people who might come around and kill me, um, people I owe money to, then people I might never see again. So that's all right. So, so I'll tell them yeah, yeah. No, I'm joking. It's it, yeah, it's a fine line, but I, you know, I've I'm not very good at making things up when so many mad things happen around me all the time. I don't feel the need to make things, to me to making things up is like science fiction. Which I've, you know, which I've never really apologised to any sci-fi fans out there, but I've, you know, I'm, I'm more concerned what's in here. Yeah, yeah. Than, than, you know. But you're using the character. You're using the characters around you. Could you? Could you put yourself in that mindset where you write from uh, the persona of someone that's you know upper middle class? 
Oh, God, yeah, I've done it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've done it. Yeah, I've, um, the book I'm writing at the minute is definitely from that angle. How do you get yourself into that mindset? Do you have to, about, you have to live listen, with somebody listen, that's really no, posh? No, no, not at all. You have to listen to people. You just have to listen to people and the way people speak. A lot of it's dialogue. Once you've got the way people speak, you can understand the way people think. So, you know, you can tell a lot by the, the, the phraseology they use. And yeah. You've just got to listen. You've got to have like, that sort of musician's ear for dialogue. And I think that's the key to it, to write incredible characters. Michelle, you were saying about um, um, Russ's use of words and local uh, local words, local phrases, that sort of thing. Yeah, for, for instance, you've got the larking out and then there's uh, don't give me out. There, there was a lot of local uh, language. In well, the, the first person ones are, because it's people from all talking, mm, but mm. In, um, the third person ones are and the, and the second person ones are. It's really hard, you know, because... If you want to speak in, in, in an accent, it's quite hard to do dialects because you run the risk of making someone sound less sort of um, savvy than they are. Do you know what I mean? People are very aware. But if you talk in a certain way, people will dismiss you. So it's really hard to, to reproduce something re that's realistic and get across the sort of weight of meaning behind it. So, yeah, it, it's a bit difficult doing dialect. I want to sort of – I can do it, I think. I want to move away from it and start writing in – other registers, other voices, really, just for my own amusement. Really. Do, you, well, do, you, do you have to experience those other voices, those communities, no, lifestyles? No, I think, no, I think, no, I think you can watch YouTube videos. If you've got an ear for it, I mean, it helps to sort of like, I mean, obviously in prisons, I meet people from all over the country, all over the world, really. So you sort of pick up on the way different people speak about, you know. I think you've just really got to have um, an ear for dialogue. I think that's it. It's a musical thing, I think. Michelle? Yeah. So one of the stories is um, talking about voices. Uh, it's from the point of view of a scouser. Yeah. Now, uh, you've got a connection with Liverpool. What What is your fascination with Liverpool? Fascination with Liverpool? Um, I don't know if I've got a fascination with Liverpool. I don't like Liverpool. It's my sort of like favourite British city outside of all, I think. Mm. Um, Why is that? Why? Why is your favourite? I just think it's a lot like Hull. I think it's, you know, when I first went there, I thought it's just like the mirror image of Hull. They've got a mad accent, they're sort of secluded, they're looking out onto water. Yeah. They don't give a fuck. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They're just like, you know, scousers and all the sort of like the yin and yang. One of them can't shut up and one of them never fucking speaks. <laughs> I, remember they, I remember they did uh, a thing in New um, Theatre. Liverpool and Hull, Hull voted Brexit, Liverpool voted Remain. Why? You know, is in all so it goes. Well, what you know, they had, they had Phil Redmond or something, and this, this kid from all, blah blah blah. Why? And the questions from the audience. Fucking <laughs> 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 yeah, a sea of mutes. You know what I mean? And it's like all voted Brexit, but they won't tell you why. And the scousers are like, you know, roaring and shit. It's like the different. You know, they never shut up, and we never open our mouths. So you know, that's sort of like I think it's the yin and yang. That's why, but as far as that story that you're on about, mm. that was a prison story told me, and it didn't happen. And I put it in all with scousers purely because that's not that's where it didn't happen. Yeah, Boyers. I think Jerome, you were going to talk about collaboration, weren't you? Yeah, absolutely. So you've been. Nice, nice. Yeah, just here is Johnny. <laughs> just, just pass it back. Just pass it back, Michelle. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, recent collaborations with Steve Cobby. Yeah. Um, 
Do you find it easier to collaborate, more enjoyable, more rewarding to collaborate with somebody? No, I love all of it, You'll which love is why it. I do all of it. Do you, do you not but find it easier to put your, your pencil to the page and start writing when you know that you're, you're working in conjunction with somebody? Well, not in the case of him, because we usually just make it up <laughs> in the shed. <laughs> um, I, I really like collab- I like collaborating with like-minded people, you know. I mean, I spent most of my writing life, before I ever wrote a book, uh, doing stuff that was completely collaborative, like in the marketing world, advertising world, and films. Writing films is incredibly... The writer is worth nothing in films. The writer is, like, there on the totem pole. Do you know what I mean? Like, scum. You know, if you speak, they look at you as if you're mentally ill. Do you know what I mean? And, so I, you know, so I thought, right, all right, I'll do things that are collaborative to keep the wool from the door and all that. But my solo stuff is very self-indulgent. But I've got to keep doing the collaborative thing because the writer's life is very lonely. And I've got a shed now, and it's lovely and comfy and cosy. But if you spend all your time in prisons and sheds, you go barmy. <laughs> so occasionally, I like to go to Steve's shed. <laughs> you know, and, and um, music. Yeah, I've always done music. I was in a band. Before I, I, what was I, the band you were in? They were called Looking for Adam. I was the lyricist and bass player. Yeah. Pardon? Where was who? Adam. That, that ceased to become relevant about 10 minutes after we thought of the name. We later found out it was um, a, 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 a photography exhibition of um, after, of naked men looking for Adam, like looking for the original man. And it was in San Francisco and it was like part of the... It got shut down, do you know what I mean? There was like a riot outside the art gallery. So we were quite... You know, pleased about that connection, but all anyone ever used to said was, "Where's Adam?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We should have changed our name to Doves or something like that. Do you play the Adelphi? Fucking too many times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've always, you know, that's where writing started for me with music. When I was in a band, I was the, the lyricist. I wanted to become a writer because I had the Jam and the Clash and, mm. and all, you know, all them sort of bands that wrote brilliant lyrics. Amazing cinematic storytelling lyrics, um, so that's what made me want to write. And I didn't know I, I didn't want to write a book. A book, you know, how do you write a book? Fuck off! You know, a song, bang, it's out. It's out there within minutes of, of doing it. And that that instant sort of thing really appealed to me. Well, Obviously, what? as you get older, you know, you realise you're going to be writing all your life. What is the collaborative process, though, when you're, you're working with Cobby. Steve Cobby? Do you just we go around, we rage about the world for about an hour. We, like, really, really get angry about everything that's going on in the world. Then we watch some, like, mad videos from the 80s and laugh uproariously for another hour. And then we press record and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Right, uh, Russ, I've been looking through your blog, which seemed to... Blog? Have I got a blog? You've got a blog, but actually... It you seemed... mean something I wrote on the internet in 2014 and forgot it, it about seemed, it? seemed to finish in 2016. All actually. right, okay, yeah, go on. Yeah, then, so I think it? you need to update it, so you can you can post this podcast you forget about these to your blog. Things, you forget about them there, there. But I came across the, some pieces you wrote whilst you were in hospital. You had, oh, yeah, yeah, you had yeah. something wrong with your foot, didn't you? Yeah, you yeah. In a cast for a few yeah, months. Yeah, yeah, broke my ankle. Yeah, I remember. How'd you do that? Carrying the... A board, what, um, what they call them, whiteboard, stationary related. <laughs> <laughs> you dropped it on your foot? No, I was I, in my haste to take it into another room, I didn't properly collapse it. So therefore, I couldn't see where I was going when I faced forward and promptly chipped over a cab and shattered my ankle bone. With, all through, through a whiteboard, but I didn't realise. I didn't realise I was in Lumbank. I was laid up and there was a snowdrift, so you couldn't get an ambulance back. And I was like, another three days walking about on, on a stick in the snow, and I got back, 
and they said I'd broken it and I had to have um, a plate in it. And it's the first bone I've ever broken in my body, if you believe that or not, despite being hit repeatedly on the nose <laughs> as a youth. But anyway, I was reading these um, th- this blog entry. You'd got yeah. um, three hospital fragments. Yeah. And in the third fragment, there's this, this phrase... Louise said to be a poet, you had to be an active witness, witness yeah, in the yeah. world. Yeah. And I'm interested in that word witness because a witness is different to an observer. Would you well, agree? because Louise Walwyn, who that, that line relates to, uh, was there at uh, Kos when all the Greek um, refugees, sorry, the refugees from Syria landed on Greek land. And she'd gone there uh, to greet them off the boats and I, and the first time I met her she was telling me this story about how she'd like stayed up basically for like three days welcoming boatload after boatload of kids um, and, I, and I says why did you do it you know Christ it was really and she goes well if I'm going to be a poet and write she says, I wrote something about it and if you're going to write about things like that you've got to be an active witness you know you've got to be active what does that mean exactly you can't just talk about kids dying in the ocean in the Mediterranean you've yeah. got to go and have a look yeah, you're not just describing what happened. No, you're, you're, you're an active you, witness. You're, you're trying to uh, affect some change. She just said she wanted to say, welcome, welcome to Europe. When you're writing, do you write in order to affect a change? You're not just informing, you're not just entertaining? Or are you trying to change people's Only mindset? in myself. Only in myself, no. You can't, you, if you set out to write like that, you'll write drivel. You'll write didactic drivel. I think if you set, if you go right, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to teach the world to sing. Oh. Perfect. Man. <laughs> it's, going be, it's going to sound like that, isn't it? It's going to sound like the fucking you see. It's going to sound like Shaker Baker by Oasis. I was just about to yeah. turn up microphone four because I thought the audience <laughs> were just about to. Sort Me of... and Mike were singing in that other room you've got out there, and it sounded brilliant. <laughs> we're singing Billy Ocean. Red light spells danger. <laughs> I'm not about to sing. Don't point at me. <laughs> it's interesting you say that because. This book was written uh, and set during 2017, and it feels like uh, the stories are the things that weren't set during 2017. Mm. So it feels that it does have a kind of activist angle. Would that be would that be fair? What do you mean, activist? Well, you're speaking up for the people who don't. No, I'm not speaking up for anyone. I'm not speaking up for anyone. You're not. No. No. Okay. No, I'm just imitating voices. I'm not speaking up for anyone. Sorry, does that totally destroy? No, the no. Well, I, I, I felt it was slightly more. Um, no, well, you said, well, no, you said it's like the other side of the city culture. Yeah, and all that. something like well, that. Well, you know, yeah. I, I think if you, if you're going to write a book set in 2017 and all, for it to be realistic, there's got to be stories where nobody mentions the city of culture. Do you know what I mean? Because it wasn't all about no. You know, and there were communities and, and, where it didn't touch, absolutely. Yeah, of course, there was, you know, but I, you know, I don't, I'm sick of talking about the city of culture, mm. to be quite mm. honest. I mean, what do people expect for it? It's gone to ra. Great, thanks for coming. It was Ace being on telly. <laughs> you know, off your pop. Fair Thank enough. you. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. not, like you said before, there's loads going on. You just there won't is. get a glossy pull out of it with someone who you've seen off the telly on the front of it. But it's still out there. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, don't fucking terrace. What are they, what are they called now? Absolutely fabulous or something. <laughs> what, is that what they call? Utterly, utterly butterly. Utterly yeah. butterly. I can't believe it's not culture. <laughs> There's your tagline for you. Perfect. Perfect. Love that. Russ, do you think 
being a writer is a burden or a blessing because I can't always tell when I listen to you speak. <laughs> it's both, isn't it? No, it's a blessing. Ultimately, it's a blessing. You know, I wouldn't do something I didn't like doing, would I? Only a lunatic does that, doesn't he? You know what I mean? You know, I mean, unless you have to, and no one's making me be a writer, are they? I'd, it gets on my nerves a bit. You know, but you know what it's like. Everyone, half the people, they know what it's like. It gets on your nerves, but you can, it's like a scab that you can't leave alone. You're like a fucking leper. You know, it's, it's, but it, so in some ways, yeah, it's like it's like scratching a nettle. You know, it hurts, but it's a good hurt. It's a bit like that, I think. <laughs> Anybody else? Uh, Liam. Uh, when you write, do you kind of pay attention to the political climate around us, or do you try and steer clear from that? Well, I think I must... No, I don't try and steer clear from it. I, I mean, I write every day, and I'm sort of like... Think about the political climate every day, so I think... It, you know, it's bound to come out, isn't it, really? Uh, I try not to make it a conscious thing at all, because I've got no idea what the fucking answer is, or what to do, or... You know, I'm just interested what it does to people, which makes you a bit useless, really, do you know what I mean? It makes you a bit voyeuristic, you know... But, uh, I, no, I, I don't... Things creep in, do you know what I mean? It's like sometimes... I remember writing this thing about this old lady listening to the radio. And I thought, well, what would be on the radio? What would she hear? Would she hear about, you know, kids from her end dying in Iraq or something, or somebody lying? <laughs> do you know what I mean? I'm, you know, so that, that it seeps in in that way purely because I'm doing realism or trying to. I hope, I hope that answers it, yeah. Alison. The, the title of your book is um, We Know Who We Are. We Know What We Are. We, we Know What We Are. Do we? Who's we? The we that you're referring to. Pardon? The we that you're referring to. In that title? Yeah. The people of all? Yeah. Do they know who they are? Or does it change, um, well, depending on the situation? Yeah, of course it does. As a, as a, individually, they probably don't know who they are, maybe. Yeah. But as a collective entity, that's just took from a football champ. So, having been took from a football chant, it was a spontaneous expression. I was there when it happened. You know, it was like defiance. It was back to the Iroquois thing. It was back to the, you know, my people are stoic like Iroquois. We don't give a flying fuck what you call us. <laughs> Town full of smackheads, city culture, words. We live here. We know what we are. Do you know what I mean? So that's what it meant to me. So as, as, as a... As a whole, I didn't get I didn't get metaphysical about it. Yeah, it was as a whole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was it wasn't as individuals, but it's, yeah, I, th I think the answer is probably no. Having <laughs> <laughs> <I've been, laughs> said all that, the answer is probably no <laughs> to any of us. Uh, Mike, Russ, yes. Out of all the meals you've cooked for Ruth, <laughs> which one would you say is the greatest? My spaghetti bolognese, Mike. <laughs> or is that? Yeah, it is. It's exemplary. You know what the secret is? Drain off the fat. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you, should, you should actually, the best thing to do, the best thing to do is with your mint, stick it in the oven and bake it. Ooh. Advanced you, bolognese. No longer hob based. Then you get a nutty texture. Yeah, but then you need oven to table wear. <laughs> <laughs> Oven to tableware, that's a tableware. <laughs> <laughs> Russ, you gave me a brilliant piece of advice about six, uh, 18 months ago when I asked you about writing. And I was asking you about, should I write this or should I write that? Should I do this? Should I do that? And you said very simply, just do it. Just write it. Worry about it afterwards. Just write it. And I've took that on board. 
and I've not done the whole procrastinating, oh, if I write this, will it go there? Will it go here? Will they respond to it? I've just gone full on and written. So thank you very much. Well, I've seen you do it. You did that 100 days of writing, didn't you? And you've, I've, I've, I've seen what you've been doing because you put it all online, don't you? Mm. So, yeah, I think that's fantastic. Yeah, and I've seen, the last couple of times I saw, saw you, I really liked what you was doing. Well, before that, anyway, that sort of memoir stuff you was doing, I thought it was great. So, yeah, yes. I mean, that is, it's fucking boring, isn't it, being a writer? Just write. You know, you do creative writing classes and go, what's the secret? Right, write loads. And then cross it all out. That's a bit boring. I know. Welcome to my world. <laughs> Why do you think I go around Cobby's shed? What, go on. Sorry, yeah, hello. I've got a question. Have you got a set format for writing then throughout your day? You said you write every day. Yeah. Is it, are you better in the morning? Do you do a bit and have your dinner? Do you just go at it all day? What's, what's, how a com- do you write? A, com- a complete mishmash of that. When, if, I, if I'm not having to be anywhere other than my house, I try and start as soon as possible. As soon as possible, as early as possible. Because that, that, that gives me a, you know, I try not to even look at my phone or all like that. I just try and like get a, straight into it. If anything interrupts me, that, that's it, you've had it really. But because I'm working fairly regular hours and working away at the minute, I've had to snatch it, think, you know. I go in my shed, you need a place. You need a place, you need to go, right, I am sat down writing now, even if it's only for half an hour, you know. And I've rediscovered writing by hand in prison, you know, while I'm waiting for someone to wander back from talking to his mate. I, I write by hand because I can't take a, a laptop or a phone in there. So that's good, you know. It's just, I, I try and do at least an hour's worth every day at the minute. When I'm, when, as far as routine goes, I'm an early bird. And I like music with no words in it. I do too. Yeah, it's good, yeah, isn't it? It's, or it's music so with words that I don't understand. Like French hip-hop. Or Italian, <laughs> Italian <laughs> opera. Or MC Solar. Or Russian it's, metal. Seagull Ross. That's good, isn't it? Oh, it's Ross, like, it's yeah. like, I, oh, the Cocteau Twins. Do you think you'd be disappointed if you found out that the words were really shit? So. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. <laughs> well, I ain't bothered. I don't care, to be honest. I ain't bothered. They could be, I don't give a fuck what they're on about. <laughs> <laughs> so, I just wanted to annoy you, Russ, by mentioning City of Culture. Your, um, <laughs> your, your gig with Cobby at Jubilee Church was one of my highlights of uh, last year, um, mainly because of the live version of Home that you did, which is one of my favourite go-to tunes all the time. Thank you, dear. Um but you looked quite um, uncomfortable uh, for part of that gig, as if you, you know, you you, you were um, a little bit nervous or whatever. Oh and, God, um, yeah, I was really I wonder, nervous. Yeah. I wonder how much you enjoyed performing that stuff live with Cobby and, and where you see that going. I, I love it. I love it. Um, yeah, I was nervous at, at that thing because I couldn't see anything. All I could see was like. It was like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It was like, because there's like a top shelf, aren't they? Mm. And, and it was just like two blinds of, of thingy. And it's real loud and um, it's an emotional piece, isn't it? That, that last bit. And uh, all I could think of was at the end is if, and it, there's a bit at the end where it's just them gospel singers going, isn't it? I thought, well, that's me finished. I don't have to do it now. I could just go off. <laughs> and, and I thought, well, I'll just look a bit daft and Steve will go mad at me go, why did you go off so I thought what can I do so I just stood on the edge like looked out and after a bit I sort of became aware that I'd been stood real still I thought fuck it looks like a pose now <laughs> at what point do you break it do you know what I mean 
it goes on forever. That it, it, it's like, um, mm, real sad. I know, sad, sad. The end. Thanks. Come on. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as for sort of like doing um, live stuff, yeah, I love it. We tend to do stuff out of town with like people we know out of town. We do it. We just do it for a laugh. We don't take it at all seriously. At all, so that and that's the utter joy of it. Because I've been in bands where it's like, right, we're going to play all round here, and we're going to get the enemy. We can't, you can't now, can you? We're going to get to you know, to bloggers, and, and we're fifty for Christ's sake. Do you know what I mean? We're just like having a laugh. It's good. It's good fun. Well, I think we've enjoyed our close encounter, haven't we? We're Russ. Um, perhaps Thank it is. Thank you very much for having me. It's now time to break it. Maybe this gaggle's looking quite thirsty. There's yeah, a few man. cans getting lifted to the mouth, even as we talk. So uh, thanks for listening in. Um, if you want to be part of the next audience, uh, then follow myself, Photo Moments, on Twitter, or follow Michelle D, which is at... D. Thank you very much. Um, until next time, we'd better say cheerio. Thanks very much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Ciao. <laughs>